These are certainly the most common issues we hear that our clients and their clients are experiencing in regards to trust deeds and certainly when those trusts are approaching banks or financial institutions and having them vetted by those by those entities. You're listening to Australia's podcast for accountants, Tax Talks, the podcast to grow your firm. Welcome to episode 264 of Tax Talks. This is Heide Robson and thank you to Class for sponsoring this episode. In this episode, Emily Pritchard of Access will walk you through nine common issues around trusts. Nine issues. Emily and I recorded this interview in two lots. We first had the actual interview and then sometime later, Emily clarified a few things. So at the start of one of these later comments, you will hear this sound. And then at the end of the insert, you will hear this sound. So here's Emily Pritchard of Access in Brisbane about nine common trust deed issues. Common issues around trusts. The first point I think is quite easy, but it's good to start easy. Number one, names and ACNs. Names and ACNs. <laughs> Yeah, that look, it is easy. You're right. It's really simple. But I think what it's important to do, sometimes the simplest things are the things that require more frequent reminding. And it, as I often say to my clients, I know that you are aware of the legalities surrounding this and the importance of having correct full legal names recorded in, say, trustees, for example. It's important that they remind everyone in their office who might be assisting them with ordering products how important this is as well. So, you know, in short, a trust deed is a legal document and it must contain correct, full legal names. This means you include middle names. It means that if Billy is actually William, that he is, he is actually recorded as William. It is extremely common for us to receive orders from clients to amend and ratify trust deeds that incorrectly record names. And it's just one of those things that could so easily have been avoided. I can imagine in Australia it's quite easy because you either have a middle name or you don't. And apart from endearments, William becomes Billy or etc. Mm. I think it's quite straightforward. But overseas, it's quite often names are often, <laughs> may I call it fluid. Um, <laughs> so it starts with that people have not just one middle name. They don't just have two middle names, they have three middle names. And mm. I'm a perfect example. I have three middle names because wow. every grandmother, etc., was added to it. And then my passport, I think, only includes two middle names. My driver's license only includes, includes one middle name. My birth certificate, of course, includes all three. And so it's actually not always as straightforward as one thinks. And I think the answer is basically just go with what is in your Australian passport. I think full legal name and consistency wherever possible. I fully appreciate you're absolutely right that in Australia, it's probably not as big of a, an issue culturally, but wherever possible, full legal name and consistent. If we have the inconsistencies, that's when third parties, for example, banks are going to pick up issues. Consistency, but if driver's license and passport and birth certificate are not consistent, then I think go with the Australian passport. Well, it's a tricky one. My gut here wants to say 
go with your full legal name, whether that's recorded on your Australian passport or not. But then we open up a whole new can of can of worms, don't we? Said, so don't um, give your <laughs> don't ever give your child more than one middle name. <laughs> it is a complex thing, and we have. You know, we have blended families and step families and hyphenated names and, and those things do make it administratively difficult sometimes. But I do feel like when it comes to trustees, that is certainly an area that we can avoid in most instances having to come back for further changes. ACNs, on the other hand, while names are difficult, ACNs are easy, you know. Yeah, it's and number. that is just making sure you get it right. That's all that is. No clerical errors. Have them correctly recorded. Okay, so that's point number one. Number two, stamping. Point number two is stamping, and that is very strange because I think in Queensland you don't stamp anymore, but I think in New South Wales and Victoria you still stamp. That's and right. I don't actually even know what stamp means. It doesn't mean a, a red wax stamp with a seal on it. I think it means... <laughs> it might have once back in the day. That it's somewhere registered as being stamped, correct? What it no, what it actually yes, means, we yes, don't yes, even have would. a public record. We don't have a public record of trustees. What it actually means is similar to when you enter into an agreement to purchase a property and stamp duty will be payable on that transfer of property. It's another duty that is payable, and that is on the establishment of a trust over non-dutiable property, so over the $10 settlement sum. And you're right, there is no duty payable on the establishment of a trust over non-dutiable property in Queensland. There is $500 payable in New South Wales and $200 in Victoria. But what we often find is where trusts have been wholly executed, say, in Queensland, so that means that the trustee and the set law have both executed the deed in Queensland and there is no duty payable because this is, that was the jurisdiction in which the trust was established. Sometimes we find that if that trust then went on to purchase property in Victoria, for example, the bank might say to them, well, you need to have the trust deed stamped in Victoria. And in short, that's incorrect. Any duty on the establishment of the trust is wholly determined by where that trust deed is executed and where that trust is established. So if that is Queensland, then that is where any dutyable, any duty attaching to the establishment of that trust is determined. If that trust goes on to purchase property in Victoria, for example, certainly that purchase of property in Victoria will be governed by Victorian duties legislation. But any duty payable on the establishment of the trust will be determined by Queensland because that is where the trust was established. Do they say that because they are worried about the location of any legislation or that they just feel uneasy about dealing with the Queensland trust when they yeah. are in Victoria? I think there's a couple of reasons. Sometimes the reasoning is that the applicable law or the jurisdiction that's recorded in the trust deed is Victoria. So it's Queensland if it's registered in Queensland. No, sorry. So the establishment could be in Queensland, but the applicable law or jurisdiction could be Victoria. What the applicable law or jurisdiction is, is the jurisdiction which the trustee is determining at the time they execute the trust deed, that any issues arising between the trustee and beneficiaries will be resolved. So the trust deed, if it's wholly executed in Queensland, but it has a jurisdiction of Victoria, that means that if the beneficiary takes issue with something the trustee does or does not do, then it needs to go to the Supreme Court of Victoria to resolve that issue. But I think okay. sometimes the banks maybe see the word Victoria there and think, 
it's a Victorian trust. Why hasn't been why hasn't it been stamped in Victoria? Without realizing that it's completely separate to duty on its establishment. The other reason that sometimes banks give to justify the need to stamp the trust deed in a separate location to where it was established is because the trust is now going on to purchase property in that location. How can they see whether it has been stamped in Victoria or not? Because you said there is no register of trust. It would have a marking on it though. So you would still submit it to the Victorian, say, OSR, and they would mark it and you would pay your $200 and it would say stamped on this date and signed by an authorised representative of the commissioner. Okay, so so there's not just a signature there, but there's also a stamp. Yeah, there's a marking from or a certificate even that could be issued, but it's generally a marking. So I think that the trustee would be submitted to the bank, for example, in Victoria, and they would say, we're we're buying a Victorian property. Where's the stamp from Victorian OSR? But... In short, if it's been executed in Queensland, it doesn't need one. And this is something we see fairly regularly from kind of top-tier law firms acting for big four banks. Don't be put off by that. Simply explain the situation or contact us for assistance in that. And I have never seen a situation where we have gone back and explained the scenario to the bank. They generally always accept the pushback. So there's no need to incur those additional costs. Number three automatic removal of trustee clauses. So in recent times, we've certainly seen an increase in the number of amendment orders we receive requesting the deletion of our automatic removal of trustee clause. From the banks. That's right. In the majority, if not all of the cases, it's coming back off the back of a request by the bank or financial institution. Yes, a bank or financial institution that is about to issue a mortgage. That's exactly right. They feel worried that the trustee disappears. That's right. They want to be in the best situation they can to realise security in the, in the event of a default. So what the access trustee does, it provides that the trustee is automatically removed from that office following the occurrence of certain events. And they mostly relate to bankruptcy. events in relation to trustee capacity. But bingo, that's the one the bank has issue with, the bankruptcy or insolvency or liquidation events. Because if the trustee's role is automatically vacated, upon, let's say, the trustee becoming bankrupt, then the trustee becomes a bare trustee. And what that means is the trustee still sits there being the legal, the holder of the legal title of that property, but they do so without the benefit of any of the powers previously afforded to the trustee by the trustee, and that includes the power to sell the asset. So if the trustee no longer has the power to sell the assets, then nor does, let's say, a trustee in bankruptcy or a liquidator. And this is exactly the scenario that the banks are trying to avoid because they're trying to protect their interests in the event of a default. In such an event where the banks didn't have the powers afforded to it under the trust deed, a creditor trying to take control of and sell an asset would need to apply to the courts for approval to do so. That's what they're trying to avoid. So so what the bank doesn't like is they want that clause taken out because if that clause exists, then the trustee is holding the assets as a bare trustee without the powers afforded to it under the trust deed, which means it can't then go to sell the asset, which makes it very difficult for a bank in the event of a default to realise that security. Because so the bank wants, that's right, they'd have to apply to the court. The bank doesn't want to have to do that. So if they have this clause removed, then it, it generally removes the need for them to apply to a court for, for the power to sell an asset in the event of a default. Yes, because going to the court is time-consuming and inexpensive. Correct, yeah. Is this only an issue with individual trustees? Because with a corporate trustee, if the corporate trustee doesn't do anything else but being a trustee, then that corporate trustee can't go bankrupt. So then 
you would never have that issue. So I can imagine this request for removal of the automatic removal is particularly relevant for individual trustees. It is, but I have seen the request in relation to corporate trustees, and I suspect that is likely because the bank isn't fully aware of everything that trustee might trustee company might be doing. Yeah. So in order to protect those interests, they are on the side of caution and request the removal of that clause. Yeah, well, and, and I think I agreed with you at the time, but when I think about it, the reality is that the trustee could get sued and go into insolvency if it's a trading trust, even if it's only the trustee of that trust. Does that make sense? Yeah. So okay. I think you went on to say that, that it would normally only be an issue for individual trustees because if the trustee was a company then and it was only the trustee of the trust, then it's unlikely to go into liquidation. But the reality is if it's a trading trust, it could go into liquidation because it could be sued in its capacity as trustee. I think the point I like to make in this regard is that often our clients come back to us and say, we bought this trust deed off you last year and already we have to get amendments to it because the bank says something is wrong. And whilst I fully appreciate the bank's opinion there, and I'm not saying that I would say any differently if I was acting for the bank, I think it's important to realise that we haven't erred in the drafting of our trust deed. These provisions are included to protect to ensure for asset protection purposes. That's right. So it becomes a, a competition of interests, I guess, between the asset protection interests of the person establishing the trust and the people for whose benefit that is and the protection of the bank's interests. Number four, powers, conflict of interest clause and derivatives. Next one is powers, conflict of interest clause and derivatives. Yeah, this one's really quick. I guess a whole part of this, the reasoning behind a lot of me sharing this information is that we get the benefited access of feedback from accountants across the country. And so it's a, it's a way of sharing that to the broader population of accountants. And something we see fairly frequently is requests from banks to have trust deeds amended to insert additional powers of the trustee. And again, this is quite fair and reasonable in the majority of cases, but there are certainly situations where I would suggest pushing back to the bank and suggesting that it's not necessary. The two examples I gave are the conflict of interest clause and the derivatives clause. Conflict of interest, quite often the bank will be sitting, with all due respect, someone in the bank has a checklist and they can't proceed to the next step of the application unless they can tick every box on that checklist. And if they can't see a conflict of interest clause in the wording that they are used to seeing, they can't tick that box. But it's important to know the trustee or speak to us if you're not sure where it might be, because in a lot of cases, the clause is there. It's just in different words to what they're used to seeing. So you don't need to go and spend a few hundred dollars amending the trustee because it's already there. So it's about knowing when to push back to the bank and say, hey, that's already there. Have a look at this clause. I know it's different wording, but it is there. And this, the reality is in a lot of cases, the wording of the access deed is actually better than the suggested clause coming from the bank. So that's one thing to be aware of. And so what alternative word should one look for when one is looking for a conflict of interest? Well, it, it could be worded in all sorts of in, in all sorts of ways, and it may not even use those words conflict of interest. It may say things like the trustee can act and do all of the things that are afforded to it under this trust deed, despite it having any personal interest, it might say, or something along those lines. So certainly I'm more than happy to speak to people if they're not sure, but it's something I just say to be aware of when dealing with banks, because I appreciate the person at the bank is doing their job, but quite often it's not required. Likewise, the derivatives clause, if a trust is trying to borrow money off the bank to buy 
a piece of farming land in North Queensland and it never intends to enter into derivatives, then it is not necessary for that trustee to be amended to give the trustee power to enter into derivatives. And so I think just be aware of some of those kind of things. Don't always assume that bank has everything 100% accurate and feel free to question where necessary. I see. And derivatives is an issue because older trust deeds, of course, don't cover derivatives because they are more of a new phenomenon. That's right. But again, if the trust, if the borrowings from the bank have nothing to do with entering into derivatives transactions and the trustee has no intention to, then you don't need to amend the trustee to include that power at this point. Number five, vesting date. Next point is vesting date. And I can imagine the point is basically just make sure the trust hasn't already vested when you try to put more assets into it. (laughs) Bingo. When you try and do anything, what I always say is, have a process in place whereby this is checked and checked regularly. Whether you keep the vesting date of a trust in bold writing on a sticker on the front of the trust register or each year when you've got to do distributions, you review the vesting date, whatever it is, just be aware of it. When we recently did some 800 amendments for foreign person exclusions in New South Wales that we spoke about, we actually came across two out of those 800 trusts that had already vested. So we went back to our client and they had to go back to their client and say there isn't actually a trust care anymore. We also had another two that were very near to vesting. So they were able to go back and amend in those circumstances to avoid it. But it's something to really be aware of. Because up on vesting, you have CGT, don't you? You potentially can, that's right. And the assets of the trust will need to be distributed. So yes, you could have transfers of dutiable property, CGT events, all sorts of things. And it's something that if, if, if that is approaching, you want to be able to plan for that not just miss it completely and it's already happened. Number six, read the deed. Next point, read the deed. Yeah, I feel like a broken record saying this, but it's really important to ensure that the trustee administers the trust within the restrictions and in accordance with the terms of the trust deed. That's really all I want to say there. There's certainly been examples in the past where this has, you know, people haven't read the deed and mistakes have been made. The deed is a long, tedious document. What points should one particularly look for? I can imagine vesting date, who are the beneficiaries, and what can or can't the trust buy or sell? Would you say those three points are the most relevant? Yeah, the lawyer in me wants to say that you need to know the whole, whole thing, of course, but yes. I think you should always be aware of when the trust is vesting. You should always be checking to make sure that the trustee allows the trustee to do whatever it is the trustee is going to do. So if the trustee is going to invest in something in particular, check that the trustee allows them to do that. And absolutely, you need to know who the potential beneficiaries are when you're making distributions. Yeah, so what it was about was I think when we were talking about reading the trust deed and you were saying if you don't want to read the whole deed because it's too big, you know, these are the things you need to look for. And I think my comment was really it's ideal to read the whole deed. But then we did talk about some things that if you weren't going to were the highlights you needed to look for. Um, So I guess my comment in that regard would be another thing that you need to look for really is the mechanisms in relation to changes and succession in appointor and trustee positions. So have a look and see that the trustee provides for situations where an appointor passes away or loses capacity uh, and if there is someone to take their place, if no one has been named in the deed as an alternative appointor, what the deed then says about how that position will be filled so you're not left with an empty position. Basically look out for how trustees change, who can appoint a trustee, what happens if a trustee is it loses capacity, the whole me- mechanism Mechanisms. around it. Yeah, correct. And especially in regards to the appointer, because it's generally the appointer who has that power. 
to change the trustee or to appoint a new trustee in the event that a trustee becomes bankrupt or loses capacity. But if there's no mechanisms around who fills that, the appointal role, then you can be left with a bit of a stalemate in terms of appointing new positions. Yeah, that's a very good point because we are very often focused on the trustee, but what mm. happens if the appointer bites? That's right, yeah. So you need those multiple mechanisms built into the deed to deal with pretty much every potential scenario. Absolutely, you need to know who the potential beneficiaries are when you're making distributions. And the perfect example here is some time ago, a client called our office to discuss something completely unrelated but happened to send the trustee in and say that they had been making distributions in a certain manner and the trustee said something like, the beneficiaries are John Smith, children and remote issues, spouse, parents, etc. of John Smith, and any company of which John Smith is a director. Now, in the course of the discussions, they happened to mention that over the previous few years, they'd made $5 million worth of distributions to a company. The only problem was John Smith had passed away, which meant he was no longer a director of that company which meant that the company actually wasn't a beneficiary of the trust anymore because it said any company of which John Smith is a director and he was no longer a director. So I think that's where it's really important not just to rely on previous distributions or distribution minutes, but to actually look at the deed in any particular case. What happens in that case when you distribute to somebody you, you're not allowed to distribute to? Well, arguably those distributions are invalid and then all of that sensible to I the believe, trustee. Exactly. All of that income, I believe it was around the $5 million mark, would technically be accessible in the trustee's hands at the highest marginal rate. Yeah. So we talked about the invalid distributions being taxed at the highest marginal rate in the hands of the trustee. And what I guess I wanted to add was, whilst that's generally the case, it may not always be the case. It's really going to depend on what the trustee says, because um, a lot of trustees will say that in the event of an invalid distribution, it may it, there'll be a deemed distribution to default beneficiaries. So whilst it's generally the case that it'll get taxed um, at the highest marginal rate in the hands of the trustee, it really depends on what the trustee says. Yes, and this default me mechanism is mm. exactly to avoid this, to avoid that income ends up in the trustee's hands at the highest marginal rate. So by having That's this right. default beneficiary in the trustee basically avoids that because chances are that the default beneficiary is, is at a lower tax rate than the highest marginal one. Yeah, that certainly is a consideration you should have when you're looking at who, who will be your defaults. That's right. Number seven, execution. Next point, execution. Yeah, we very frequently see requests for us to ratify executions of trust deeds because they have not been executed originally in, in accordance with the law. For companies, they need to be executing deeds in accordance with Section 127 of the Corporations Act. So that is by two directors or by a director and a company secretary or for a private company that has a sole director who is also the sole secretary, then by that director. Quote on execution, what does execution really mean? It just means that the trust deed must be signed by the right people or That's what does right. execution mean? So what I'm mean? talking about is it's one matter, I guess, to ensure that the correct parties are recorded as parties to a certain document or deed and that they all sign it. But execution is following the law in relation to that. So you know, Section 127 says that a, a company can execute a document in this way. So if two directors of that company execute the document in that capacity, then that document will be taken to have been signed by the company. 
most states, I think it's all states actually except Victoria, tell us that an individual signing a deed will be taken to have executed it if they've signed it and it's been attested to by at least one witness who is not a party to the deed. For example, the witness signature is missing or the company's constitution says you need two directors but only one director signs or a director and a secretary signs. All of these are then issues around the Or maybe someone someone who signed the document wasn't actually a director on that date. They had either ceased to be a director or hadn't yet become a director. A really frequent one is where you've got a super a super fund and we do an upgrade of the governing rules and it goes out to John and Mary Smith, who are the trustees, and they sign the deed and they witness each other's signatures because it needs to be witnessed by someone who's not party to the deed. Yes, they can be a relative, but they must not be party to the deed. Exactly. So it can be, for example, it can be their adult children mm-hmm. as long as these adult children are not members of the SMSF. That's right. So that's execution. Yeah, so all I really wanted to say there was, whilst it's not a technical necessity that a company always executes documents in accordance with Section 127 of the Corporations Act, the reality is that banks will insist upon it. Even if a company's constitution outlines a different way in which a company may execute documents, the bank's not necessarily going to want to review the constitution and ensure that the company has complied with it. What the bank wants is strict compliance with section 127 so that they can rely on the assumptions that that allows them to as a result. Yes. And I think uh, section 127, for example, is very relevant when it comes to electronic signatures, correct? Well, uh, it probably wasn't so much now. There's certainly been some variations to um, the standard ways that companies and individuals can execute documents in in the world of COVID. And I do understand that there's been some changes to the Corporations Act in that regard. Number eight, settler of a unit trust. Settler of a unit trust. We have often have banks push back and question or query. Well, we've had it both ways. We've had banks question why a unit trust has been set up with a set law and why a unit trust has been set up without a set law. The short answer is a unit trust can validly be settled or or established with or without a set law. We prefer using the settled method, so having a set law, but it can be validly done in either way. And you prefer having a settler so that it's clear who is contributing the money? That's right. So if you don't have a, well, if you do have a set law, when that set law hands over the $10, for example, settlement sum to the trustee, then you have trust property at that moment. You have that $10. If there isn't a set law, then you don't have trust property until the unit holders, those initial subscribers, pay their subscription fees. And it may be the case that they don't pay them for a few weeks. And what that means is you don't have trust property until that time. And arguably, you don't have a valid trust until that time because trust property is essential for a valid trust. So it brings into question any actions that the trustee may have taken up until that point at which the unit holders pay their subscription fees. For example, if the trustees signed a contract for the trust to buy a property, there could be questions there and you certainly could could have issues in terms of double duty. So we recommend the settled method so that at that point, that $10 is handed over and you have established a trust and have trust property, assuming all the other elements are are there as well. That's a very good point. So, for example, you have a unit trust, no settler, so no trust property at that time. The uh, unit trust buys a large commercial property, the signs the contract, then the uh, unit holders all contribute their share. 
And then you have two problems. One problem is that the purchase contract is actually invalid because the legal entity who signed the contract, being the trust, didn't exist at the time of signing. So Certainly, the contract... if, if the trust has been recorded on the contract, yeah, that's right. And then the other problem is stamp duty. That's right. So arguably, what, what will often happen is that the trust may not be recorded on the contract. It may just be in, in the name of the company. The, the issue you may have in regards to duty is that if the corporate trustee has signed a contract to purchase property at a point when the trust has not been validly established, then arguably there, there will be a transfer from the seller to the company in its own right and then a subsequent transfer once the valid trust is established from the company in its own right to the company as trustee of the trust. So you've got a double duty potential there. Number nine, change in office holders of a trustee company. Change in office holders of a trustee company. This one's a really short point, but it's worth mentioning. If there is a change in directorship of a corporate trustee of a trust, it doesn't require a deed of amendment to be prepared because the trustee itself has not changed. Similarly, if the trustee company changes its name, so ABC Company Proprietary Limited change its name to XYZ Company Proprietary Limited, this does not require a deed of amendment be prepared for the trust. The change of office holders of the trustee company doesn't raise a resettlement issue, doesn't raise CGT or stamp duty issues, but the change of a shareholder of a trustee company might trigger CGT. Look, I, I don't think it's likely to trigger the changing in office holders of it or, or shareholders of it, a trustee company, I think is unlikely to cause a resettlement and have CGT or GD implications. That's my opinion, obviously. I can't give guarantees. Okay, so just to summarise this last point, the mm. change in office holders of a trustee company has no implication. It doesn't trigger resettlement, it doesn't trigger CGT, and it doesn't trigger stamp duty. What I'm talking about, I guess, in regards to this last point is just when banks request that a deed of amendment is prepared for the trust, because they might say, well, Emily and Heidi were trustees of the, were directors of this corporate trustee when the trust was established, but now it's actually, you know, Emily and somebody else and Heidi is no longer a director. We need a, we need a deed of amendment. The short answer is no, you don't. The trustee is still the same. It is still that company. A change in directors of that corporate trustee does not require a deed of amendment be prepared. These are certainly the most common issues we hear that our clients and their clients are experiencing in regards to trust deeds and certainly when those trusts are approaching banks or financial institutions and having them vetted by those, by those entities. Welcome back. So watch out for these nine issues. All of them probably start with reading the deed. Easier said than done, of course. Reading deeds is really boring. But if you know what to look for, you no longer fish in the dark. In the next episode, episode 265, Andrew Henshaw, Velocity Legal in Sydney, will talk about to what extent running a business from home will jeopardize your main residence exemption. Until then, thank you for listening and thank you to class for their support. Bye for now and see you in the next episode.